special short circuit episode. Today, we're celebrating Martin Luther King Day and civil rights lawyers who are fighting tough odds to vindicate their clients' constitutional rights. Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. rose to the fore of the civil rights movement in 1955 and remained central to it until his assassination in 1968. This is also the period when the United States Supreme Court made it easier to sue individual officers and municipalities for violations of constitutional rights. In 1961, for example, the court ruled in Monroe v. Pape that Section 1983 allows individuals to bring constitutional suits not only against officials who enforce unconstitutional state laws, but also against government officials who act rogue, which is the bulk of the civil rights litigation. Moreover, at that time, there was no immunity to shield these officials from accountability. Today, things look very different. Monroe v. Pape has not been overruled, but in 1982, it was significantly neutered by the court's invention of qualified immunity. Since 1982, things have only gotten worse, to the point that in the Ninth Circuit, you can't sue officials for violating your Fourth Amendment rights, even when they steal money from your home. In the Tenth Circuit, you can't sue them for violating your First Amendment rights even when they order you to hand them over your tablet after you record a violent arrest. And in the Eighth Circuit, you can't sue them for retaliating against you even when they launch an unfounded investigation to punish you for standing up for your rights. And that's just scratching the surface. So where does that leave victims of constitutional violations? For the most part, not in a good place. In cases like these, it is very difficult to find lawyers who are willing to take on the government and all the immunity doctrines at its disposal. But that's not the end of the story. There are still lawyers willing to take on these cases. And for those individuals lucky enough to find them, there is an opportunity to knock on the courthouse door and at least try to fight. Today, Three of these amazing lawyers are our guests, and they will tell you all about the cases they recently brought in trial courts. Mark Silverstein is legal director of ACLU Colorado. His latest case was brought on behalf of Ruby Johnson, a 77-year-old innocent woman whose house was searched and damaged by Denver's SWAT team based on a hastily obtained and misleading warrant. Sam Typen Bermeo runs his own civil rights law firm, Typen Bermeo PLLC. He recently brought a case on behalf of Mariah Maple, a certified nurse's aide and a mother of two who was hit with a bicycle by a police officer, then pepper sprayed, and then arrested, all after she recorded a violent arrest on her phone. Marie Miller is an attorney right here at the Institute for Justice. Her lawsuit is against two Louisiana police officers who stopped Mario Rosales and his passenger, Gracie Lisson, for no reason, interrogating and frisking them and preventing them from recording this unlawful police encounter. Marie also sued the chief of police and the city of Alexandria, Louisiana. Let's begin with Mark. Mark, uh, first of all, welcome. Oh, thank you for... Uh inviting me. <laughs> uh, could you tell us more about Ruby Johnson and what happened to her? Um, well, at the beginning of uh, last year, 2021, um, a Denver police officer who is the defendant in our case um, was investigating uh, 
the theft of a truck that had been stolen the day before. And the detective spoke with the owner of the truck on the phone. And the owner said, um, my truck was stolen. I had six firearms in it, two drones, $4,000 in cash, and an old iPhone 11. And the owner said that during the previous day, he had used the Apple Find My app to track the location of his stolen truck. And the owner asserted that the app had pinged to a particular house in the Montbello neighborhood of Denver, our client's house, Ruby Johnson's house. Um, Ruby is, she was 76 years old at the time. She's owned her house for 40 years. She lives alone and she really doesn't even leave the house much except uh, to go to church and to the grocery store. Um, the detective um, didn't do any further investigation. He didn't look for any corroborating evidence. He simply began writing up an affidavit for search warrant based on the owner's report of the use of this Find My app. And the affidavit for warrant that the detective submitted basically said um, the owner reported that the uh, phone, uh, that the app pinged to uh, this house in Montbello, and the affidavit contained a, a screenshot that was evidently a screenshot from the app, and it showed a large blue circle that covered about six properties in the Montbello area. And the detective wrote in the affidavit, um, the, the app shows that the phone is inside the house. Um, and based on that, uh, a supervisor approved going for the warrant. An assistant DA uh, gave the green light. It went to a judge, and an hour after the judge had it, the warrant was signed by the judge. And amazingly, uh, a fully equipped SWAT team was out to the home in Montbello uh, an hour later, or less than an hour later. So uh, they... Uh, they were on the, they pulled up one of these um, almost armored vehicles um, uh, that the police have uh, right onto the lawn. And uh, on a bullhorn, they ordered everybody in the house to come out with their hands up. Um, and uh, rather terrified, uh, Ruby Johnson, our client, uh, came outside. Uh, she was taken uh, down the street in a patrol car uh, while the SWAT team proceeded to toss the house. They used a battering ram on her garage door, even though she had told them where a key could be found. Uh, they left the house in disarray. They broke, broke off the head of one of uh, her very prized, uh, one of the dolls in her you know, prized collection, and they found nothing. Uh, she had no connection to the theft. She, she didn't have the iPhone. She didn't have uh, any of the, anything that was stolen. Um, and the problem is that uh, the officer did not do any investigation to find out what is the significance of this screenshot from the Find My app. 
And had he done maybe a minute of Googling, um, he would have learned that Apple says that that large blue circle, what it means is that the location of the phone cannot be precisely identified. Uh, the large blue circle is meant to be uh, an estimate, an approximation. And since it encompassed um, six properties in that neighborhood, there is no way that, um, that that app provided probable cause to believe that the phone was inside the house. Uh, but nevertheless, uh, the warrant just sailed through a process that's apparently intended to have some checks on an overzealous, uh, incompetent uh, affidavit writer, but all of those checks failed. Yeah, that's the fascinating part, right? That technically, uh, they did everything correctly in that they obtained, uh, the, the, the officer wrote the affidavit, then they got uh, a supervisor, look at it, and then they got a judge to sign off on it. So technically, they checked every box, but that just doesn't seem like it's a sufficient way to protect people's rights. Uh, even an additional box, because uh, an assistant district attorney reviewed the affidavit and signed off on it. Um, and, and all of this, you know, there should be, there should be, probable cause is not that hard a standard for officers um, uh, to meet, but there ought, it was not met in this case, but there ought to be an even higher standard when a judge is going to authorize police officers to search um, the home that's currently occupied by people who live in the home. Um, you know, this was, uh, in a way, it's really lucky that nothing worse happened because we know what happens when SWAT teams have gone out to homes, to occupied homes, uh, and uh, things don't go uh, uh, as well as, yes, Ruby Johnson came out when, when ordered to, and she cooperated with the, with the police. Um, uh, in Denver, uh, I know about a case that I uh, looked at several years ago uh, where the SWAT team had the wrong house because the informer identified the wrong house and the SWAT team started coming in the house with a search warrant. Well, um, Ishmael Mena um, thought, well, somebody's breaking into my home. Um, and uh, he had he had a weapon and the police killed him. Um, his... Uh, his defense of his home may have been justified under Colorado law, but uh, they shot him dead. Uh, and we all know about Breonna Taylor in Lexington, Kentucky. Um, and uh, so we're lucky that something worse didn't happen. But this warrant, um, the, the officer did not have the facts necessary to write an affidavit for search warrant. The supervisor should have vetoed it. The district attorney should not have green-lighted it. The judge should have rejected it. The SWAT team should have stayed home. And uh, on that note, too, I'd like to plug in for our listeners a podcast called Broken Doors that Washington Post released a couple of months ago. And there they talk about no-knock warrants and how easy it is to obtain those. Uh, you even have these kind of things called like cloud gavel, right? It's an, on an online way to obtain a warrant where it takes about five minutes to get a warrant. And the next thing you know, you're breaking into someone's home. So just because there is a warrant, 
um, doesn't mean that a person's constitutional rights are not being violated. Uh, Mark, could you tell a little bit uh, more about why you chose to sue under uh, a civil rights statute in Colorado uh, rather than uh, a Section 1983, the federal civil rights statute? Um, well, sure. Um, I, the, your introduction to the podcast talked about the barrier that the doctrine of qualified immunity poses to um, to lawsuits seeking to vindicate constitutional rights um, uh, when uh, when there are cases of police officer misconduct in Colorado in 2020, uh, we enacted a statute that um, that authorizes uh, a a cause of action for damages for violations of the state constitution. Uh, it authorizes suits against police officers, uh, and it expressly rejects the defense of qualified immunity. Uh, and so um, uh, I think this is one of the first uh, lawsuits to, uh, to rely solely on that statute uh, as grounds for relief. And I'll say that uh, under Section 1983, the standard when you want to sue an officer uh, for obtaining a search warrant that should never have issued or for executing a search warrant uh, that should never have issued. The legal standard in the case law has the qualified immunity standard built right in. Uh, and so the familiar standard, to the extent that federal courts are familiar with it, um, is a already a qualified immunity standard without saying so. Um, you have to read some of the cases to realize that. So I think it's going to be much more clear in state court that um, that this is a violation of the Fourth Amendment, and we don't have to uh, we don't have to prove the almost impossible standard that it would be in federal court. Um, uh, I think that we could meet that standard, but um, but we won't have to deal with that in state court. And I think it's good for the state courts to start looking at what is the scope of our state constitutional uh, protection against unreasonable searches and seizures um, because of the, the federalization of search and seizure law um, uh, in the last 40 years has been almost so many state courts just reflexively just look to uh, federal court standards. But we have a few cases in Colorado where the state courts have said, you know, our state constitutional protection against searches and seizures, it's more protective than the Fourth Amendment. We have greater protection against unreasonable invasions of the privacy of the home. Um, so we, uh, we want the courts to, um, to continue working on that expansion of protection for civil liberties. Mark, uh, have you guys considered suing the police department itself? Well, uh, unfortunately, this statute that was passed in 2020 um, uh, authorizes suits against police officers. Um, so suing the police department is, I think, equivalent to suing the city and county of Denver, which would be, uh, that would be a claim that you could file under Section 1983, um, but not under the state statute. Um, we could file a 1983 claim uh, uh, along with our state law claim. That would allow the defendants to remove the case to federal court. 
um, right now um, and uh, what the city and county of Denver uh, and police officers have done for years when Section 1983 cases are filed in state court, they immediately remove because the jury that is selected um, in the federal court case here in Colorado um, uh, chooses jurors from all over the state and a Denver jury is likely to be um, more sympathetic uh, to victims of police misconduct uh, and maybe less sympathetic to police officers. So the fact that this case is positioned for a Denver jury, I think, is um, uh, another thing uh, favoring the plaintiff's potential recovery. Another thing about this statute that is that uh, it not only doesn't allow suits against municipalities, but it also is limited to law enforcement officers. Yes, is that it right? Is. Yes. Um, uh, and also, besides doing away with qualified immunity, it also uh, includes uh, for plaintiffs' lawyers attorneys' fees, mirroring mirroring the federal law that civil rights lawyers have been accustomed to. Which is a big deal if you want to encourage uh, civil rights lawyers to take up these cases. Uh, right. How did uh, Ms. Johnson find you? Uh, she actually, um, her her son was started to ask around about how can this be? How can, uh, and he wrote, he wrote to us um, uh, and went through our, I think it was through our online intake system. Yeah, this is so important to have organizations like ACLU on the ground so they can actually bring lawsuits, um, cutting-edge lawsuits really like these. Um, and for those interested in the Colorado statute, we have it in our report called 50 Shades of Government Immunity. Just Google 50 Shades of Government Immunity. You'll go on the website that ranks every state based on their performance, and it discusses the Colorado statute, which is one of the bright spots uh, in the last couple of years. Uh, thank you so much, Mark, for um, coming and talking to us about this case. And now let's go to Sam and talk about his case and um, uh, Mariah Maple. Tell us what happened to her. So in 2021, Mariah Maple, a certified nurse's aide, college student and mother of two dreamed of celebrating her 27th birthday in the city of Miami Beach. Miss Maple is a Buffalo, New York native, and she had spent a long, cold, very snowy winter in Buffalo. This was during the intense moment of COVID restrictions. So she was at home with her two kids, trying to keep up with her own schoolwork, trying to supervise her children during their school schoolwork. And she was tired. She needed a break. During the same period, the city of Miami Beach was drafting and passing a local ordinance called 70-A. This law made it a crime to stand within 20 feet of a law enforcement officer after a warning with an intent to do a number of things, including indirectly harass them or provoke a physical response. Miss Maple didn't know any of this when she and her family were excited about planning her trip to Miami Beach. So she goes down to Miami Beach, and the day after her birthday, early in the morning, she's out with her mother, her aunt, her sister, and her best friend. And they're walking on the street, dancing, laughing, 
having a great time. They're filming each other and Miami Beach. As they're walking, they come across an officer who is arresting another person in the middle of the street. And there's a number of officers around the scene. One is just kind of standing there looking at them. But she turns her camera to this officer. And before she knows it, this officer charges her, first hitting her with his bike and then pepper spraying her. The officer doesn't offer to provide any help to her. He just watches her walk off. And she, blinded for the moment by the pepper spray, walks about half a block to her mother, who is a rental car. And they sit in the mother's car and they try to figure out how do we find help in a city that we're just visiting. So, so Mariah and her mother come from a family with a lot of public servants. Some are nurses, some are police officers. So they see a police officer walking down the street and they flag him down, thinking that he can help her. Unfortunately for them, the person they flag down is supervised by the, the officer who pepper sprayed her. So they show this officer a video of her being pepper sprayed. And instead of immediately rushing to decontaminate her eyes or provide her with water, which we know was on the scene, he says, one moment. And he turns off his body-worn camera. A few minutes later, he and two other officers return to arrest Miss Maple. They arrest her for violating this law, 70-8, the law that made it a crime to stand within 20 feet of a law enforcement officer after a warning with an intent to indirectly harass them. Miss Maple is then searched in the middle of the street, taken to a jail, and then eventually charged with this crime. Uh, and after she was charged, the uh, officers uh, filed a number of pieces of paperwork uh, that had false representations about what happened. Uh, luckily, she beat her criminal case uh, and uh, sued uh, the officers who were involved in pepper spraying her, arresting her, uh, prosecuting her, and then covering it all up. She's also sued the city of Miami Beach for passing this ordinance uh, under the theories that it uh, creates a vague standards, uh, authorized arbitrary enforcement, uh, criminalized protected speech, and discriminated against certain viewpoints and topics. So, Sam, um, there is this audio, right, where the officer is saying that they want to arrest her to make sure that she doesn't file um, excessive force charges against them, right? Uh, or at least uh, one of the family members is telling you that they heard the officer say that. Yeah. So the audio that we have is as Miss um, Maple is being put into the police van, uh, she confronts the officer who pepper sprays her. And uh, she asks the officer, 
why uh, she's being arrested. Uh, and the officer uh, says to her, listen, listen, when you got pepper sprayed, you ran away. You should have kept running. And that is recorded on a body-worn camera. And then there is also in your complaint, you're saying, Surgeon Stella told Officer Burson that Miss Maple had not violated any valid law, but that he wanted him to arrest her because she had requested medical care and could sue him for excessive force. What do you think is going on there? What's happening there? What is going through their minds? Obviously, we don't, we, we, we can't tell until discovery, but we have enough to kind of make very reasonable assumptions. So the basis for that uh, allegation in the complaint is that they arrested her solely for violating 70-8, uh, not uh, state statutes, which had been upheld uh, constitutionally. Um, and the um, basis for why they just arrested her under, her under 70-8 uh, are that uh, the facts did not justify her arrest under the state laws. So tell us, uh, by the way, a little bit more about uh, what the legislature in Florida was trying to do and then how the ordinance is related to that. So uh, the Florida legislature uh, tried to pass uh, very similar laws uh, that included these prohibitions on being within officers uh, in a certain distance uh, after warning with an intent to do a number of very broadly described things. Those uh, two bills uh, died in the legislature, uh, but that didn't stop the city of Miami Beach uh, from passing them. So the uh, state legislature thought that was too much of a reach, but the, uh, the, the, the local uh, authority did not think much of it and passed it anyway, a similar, stat a similar ordinance. So uh, the public record in Miami Beach uh, doesn't provide an explanation for why the state legislature uh, decided not to pass those laws. The uh, commissioners, however, uh, who were sponsoring it, said that the reason why the state decided not to pass it was of no importance to them because they wanted to pass this law. Why did you uh, choose to go the Section 1983 route? This is different from what Mark uh, Silverstein did. Um, instead of uh, suing under Florida law, you're going uh, federal route. Could you explain your thinking there? Sure. Uh, so there are uh, two benefits to suing in under federal law uh, than state law uh, in Florida. Uh, the first is that to sue under state law, uh, you need to provide a notice to the defendants and wait a certain amount of time before suing. Uh, when I joined the case, it had been sued, it had been rather uh, brought just under uh, federal law, and that notice had not been provided. Uh, an additional benefit of uh, federal law versus state law is that there's a cap on uh, claims brought against um, governments uh, under tort law, including constitutional torts, uh, whereas in 1983, there, there's not a cap. 
And uh, for those interested, again, go to 50 Shades of Government Accountability, click on Florida, and you will see um, uh, the Florida laws uh, relative to Section 1983 and how different they are. And unlike, it, it gets a much lower grade than Colorado, let me put it just that way. Um, uh, so one last question, tell us how uh, uh, Miss Maple, uh, how did she find you or how did she find people that you were working with? Miss Maple initially brought her case with the lawyer who represented her uh, on her criminal case. Which is pretty typical, actually, right? In, in that sense, because that's the lawyer that she knows. Yeah. Uh, and th there's very few uh, civil rights lawyers, uh, as you mentioned, in Florida uh, that will take these sort of cases. Uh, and so uh, when they were looking for... Uh, a lawyer who specializes in this area, my name came across their desk. Yeah, that's uh, very uh, lucky, I'd say. Yeah, I've, I've, I feel uh, very excited to be working on this case, and hopefully we can get Miss Maple some justice. Absolutely. It just even thinking back to what the officer told her, right, uh, when he said you should have kept running, uh, that's just mind-boggling that something like that would happen and the officer would feel comfortable saying that. So uh, it's amazing that you guys are bringing accountability in this sense. Let's now transition to uh, Marie. Uh, we want you to tell us, Marie, about the uh, case that you brought on behalf of uh, Mario Rosales in Louisiana. Great. Well, thanks, Anya. Um, yes, so we at the Institute for Justice represent Mario and Gracie in a case arising from a traffic stop in Alexandria, Louisiana. Um, and it involves a series of constitutional rights violations, um, but the facts leading up to those violations are really uh, quotidian. You know, what happened to Mario and Gracie could happen to lots of innocent people across the country. Um, so here's what happened. Um, last June, Mario and Gracie got off work around 5 p.m., and they were on their way to pick up a car part from someone who was selling it on Facebook. Mario restores and repairs cars um, as part of his job and as a hobby. So Mario was driving his 2007 red Mustang, and the car was in proper working order. It wasn't making loud noise. It wasn't tied to any criminal activity. The only conspicuous thing about it was that it had New Mexico license plates. So Mario is driving along with Gracie in the passenger seat, um, abiding by all traffic laws, um, and he approaches a stoplight that is red. He turns his left blinker on and is sitting in the left turn lane, and a police SUV pulls in behind him and stops at the red light. The light turns green, Mario turns left through the intersection, and the police SUV follows. And before the SUV clears the intersection, it flashes its emergency lights to pull Mario over. And Mario promptly pulls over and waits in the car. Um, one police officer tells him to exit the vehicle and come to the hood of the police SUV. Um, Mario does that. And the officer asks for his license, registration, insurance information. Uh, Mario provides those things. Um, and while he's providing his insurance information uh, by pulling it up on his phone, um, the second officer gets out of the car and um, 
asks Mario if he has a gun in the car. And Mario honestly answers, yes, I have one in my bag. It's in the back seat. Um, the officer asks him, do you have any, any on you? And he says, no, not on me. Um, regardless, uh, the police, one of the police officers starts to frisk Mario and finds nothing. And the, uh, the other officer asks Mario, can I search your car? And Mario says, no, I don't want anyone searching my vehicle. Um, Mario has a personal um, reason to distrust police officers. Um, we represent Mario in a different case um, out of the Tenth Circuit that's currently pending involving a different incident. So uh, Mario doesn't trust the officers, rightly so, uh, denies consent to search his vehicle, um, the officer then orders Gracie out of the passenger seat, and um, she complies, gets out of the car, and the officers proceed to start an investigation about drugs. E even though they have no reason to believe that Mario or Gracie are involved in drugs or any criminal activity, um, they issue Miranda warnings to each of them and ask them about their personal lives, um, and then go through this litany of drugs. You know, any, any marijuana in the car, any cocaine, crack cocaine, meth, prescription pills not prescribed to you. Um, and through all this questioning, Mario and Gracie are remarkably calm, honestly answer, no, we're not involved in any kind of illegal substances. Um, Regardless, the officers try to search Mario again. They tell him to empty his pockets, um, find nothing. Um, ultimately, the interrogations lasted about 20 minutes. Um, and Mario at one point asks the officer, why did, why did you pull me over? Um, at first he had thought, you know, maybe they think I'm a wanted criminal that they're looking for. Um, but it quickly became apparent that that wasn't the case, um, that they were searching for something that they could pin on him and Gracie. Um, so one remarkable thing about the facts here is the police officers asked dispatch to run some criminal history checks on Mario and Gracie. And when dispatch reported back that they were negative on both, the one officer just expresses extreme disappointment, um, saying, oh, man, um, what are the chances of that? Um, so the officers here were hoping for and assuming that they would find something, um, but in the process did an investigation completely backwards. They stopped people to try to find this some crime instead of stopping people because they knew about a crime that they suspected people of. D didn't they uh, say something, you know, that, that there was actually a reason for um, uh, the stop that Mario didn't signal when he was driving and then you guys asked for uh, uh, tapes and you could, you know, see that he actually was signaling? Yeah, so the at one point Mario asks the officer, you know, why did you pull me over? And the officer initially says, I'll tell you in a second. And then more questioning happens from, from the officers. Um, later on, Mario asks again, 
can you be honest with me? Why did you pull me over? And the officer says, failure to signal, pure, straight, honest answer. You failed to signal, so we pulled you over. Um, well, Mario could have sworn that he did use his turn signal. And so we obtained the dash cam footage from the police SUV. And that footage clo- shows clear as day that Mario did, in fact, use his turn signal um, before he turned left, before the police officers pulled him over. Um, so what's clear is that the officers um, just thought there was something about Mario, his car, um, that flagged for them that this is this guy has got to be a criminal, that we can find something on him if we just pull him over and start asking questions or st- pull him over and search. They say, what are the chances? Yeah, what are the chances of that? And at one point, the one officer says, I'll bet there's more to this than meets the eye. Um, essentially saying, you know, there's, on the face of this, there's nothing here. Um, yet we think there's something underneath the surface. And so let's, let's keep digging. The problem is, um, that's not what the Constitution allows. You need reasonable suspicion that criminal activity is afoot. Um, you can't just have a hunch or um, base base a stop on out-of-state plates. That's, that's not any indication of criminal activity. And also, didn't you guys bring uh, claims, uh, First Amendment retaliation claims, because... Uh, uh, Mari and Gracie were prevented from recording the encounter? We did bring First Amendment claims. Uh, they're not retaliation claims, but they are First Amendment claims for um, the officers completely preventing Mario and Gracie from recording this um, illegal encounter. So Gracie had asked, can I record on my phone? Um, and the officers just flatly refused to let either of them record what was happening on their phone. Um, even though Mario showed early on that he could use his phone to provide his insurance information to the officers. Um, so it's not like um, allowing them to record was going to interfere with the investigation, um, a, a total ban on recording the encounter. Um, and they justified that um, prohibition by saying everything's being recorded by us, um, which is not very comforting for someone who is on the other side of the recording, who doesn't have possession of the recording themselves, um, you know, who's who knows what could happen to the, the police recording if they were in fact recording. Um, Mario and, and Gracie didn't know that for sure um, and didn't know what would happen to the body cam footage or the dash cam footage in the police officer's own possession. Uh, I'm going to ask you the same question I asked Mark and Sam. Um, when you were considering where to bring the claims, how did you end up with Section 1983? Well, here there, there were very clear violations of the Fourth Amendment and First Amendment. Um, and we saw that this, this kind of uh, traffic stop and series of violations can happen in any state. Um, so there's, there were opportunities to pursue some state claims in Louisiana state court, but we would have had to navigate a series of immunities and procedural hurdles um, that would have really detracted from 
the federal claims that we wanted to focus on. Um, and so we, we chose to just bring the federal claims in federal court um, and, and under Section 1983 and not bring any, any state law claims. Well, that, I think, uh, lands us in a good place for uh, wrapping up, although maybe one more question that will be better for that is, um, how? tell us a little bit of a backstory behind you and Mario and how he ended up finding you. So Mario, um, as I'd mentioned earlier, Mario had an encounter with a police officer previously in, in 2018 where a police officer held him at gunpoint in his own driveway um, because that officer uh, had a hot head and developed road rage uh, simply because Mario passed him on a road. Um, so we, we represented Mario in an appeal of a case arising out of that incident. And so while we were working on his appeal, um, this incident happened to him in Alexandria, Louisiana. And he told us about it, and we said, well, those are, those are clear violations. And what's remarkable about his, this traffic stop situation is we are quite confident that this kind of a thing happens every day um, to people across the country. The problem is it's so costly to try to hold government officials accountable when they violate rights in this way. Um, and so it, it's rare for someone to actually seek accountability, especially in the form of a lawsuit. Um, but because we already had a connection with Mario, um, we were able to recognize this is an opportunity to actually hold government officials accountable for trampling on people's rights in, in ways that um, they often would otherwise be able to just do um, without any recourse. So two of the lawyers we had on the program today are public interest lawyers, uh, one working for ACLU and Marie here working for the Institute for Justice. And it makes uh, sense for public interest law firms to take on these cases. That's why we exist. Uh, and so I want uh, to uh, give my final question to Sam, who is uh, a really a solo practitioner, right? Sam, you have your own uh, firm. How in the world do you survive? And why uh, do you take on cases like these? So I'll start with the first question, or the second question, rather. Um, why do I take on cases like these? I went to law school to help people and to represent the Davids versus Goliaths. And that's what these cases represent to me. It's an opportunity to stand up for someone and to face really long odds. How do I survive? The answer is doing a wide range of work. If, if you want to make a career doing this, uh, you have to figure out ways to do different types of work with different income streams. Uh, so uh, I've worked on appeals. Uh, I've worked on... Uh, different areas of the law, uh, but this is something that I think is very important, and my goal is uh, for it to become an even larger practice, not only in my own firm, uh, but also across the country, because these are rights that are being violated, 
and the law is there to help people vindicate them and to make the people who violate those rights pay. That's very inspiring, Sam. Uh, I'm here to encourage lawyers who are listening uh, to be more like Sam, uh, to bring up uh, these types of civil rights cases, because if you don't do it, nobody is going to do it. And it's very important to hold the government accountable through courts, because that's how our system works. Um, don't be discouraged by barriers like qualified immunity. Uh, check out our studies like uh, constitutional GPA that Marie uh, spearheaded and Fifty Shades of Government Immunity, uh, also an IJ study that I believe I mentioned a couple of times already. <laughs> um, and these studies will help you at least with doing initial research. And also don't forget that we are here, IJ is here, uh, to serve as your appellate shop if there is a need like that. If you run into immunity issues, don't hesitate to contact us. And we are here to um, uh, help you out in any way that we can. Uh, with that, I'm going to wrap it up. Thank you for listening and happy MLK Day.